But this morning, I want to speak on the subject of um, identity, reconciliation, and wrestling. Identity, reconciliation, and wrestling. And John actually offered to wear a leotard to model the wrestling aspect of this morning. But I had to t- tell him, this is Seaford. We don't, or Seaford. That's not how we do things over here. It might be fine in Eastbourne, but we're a little bit more upmarket. You've got yours. Well, I, that goes without saying, Robert. <laughs> I kind of assumed that. Um, we're going to be looking at the story of Jacob wrestling with God. Jacob wrestling with God or an angel. And if you're someone who's ever felt like uh, a label or a reputation has followed you through life, if you feel like you're caught between identities, what people say of you, what you think God's called you to, if you feel like life's a bit of a scrap or life can be a hard slog sometimes, if you've ever felt the pain of broken relationships, um, if you've been a victim of mistreatment, or if you're afraid of your mistakes or your past ever catching you up, then Jacob's story is for you. If you're not familiar with the Bible, um, or not familiar with what we do as a church, each week we preach on and, and encourage one another with explanations of the implications of what Jesus did for us on the cross and on the first Good Sunday. And what Jesus has done for us and what we believe God has spoken to us about is in this book, the Bible, which is a book of 66 books, split into two. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. The word testament means promise. So the old promise, the new promise. The new promise is all about Jesus, the promise that he makes to us. And the old promise is all about preparing for Jesus, about the people of Israel, the people that God chooses to carry the promise that one day Jesus is going to come. This morning, we're going to be looking at the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and um, I'm going to be reading together from chapter 32. It's a lengthy chapter because I think the story is, is good enough, if you like, just in the Bible. So we're going to be reading the whole chapter and we're going to be making comments about it as we go. And this morning's themes, this morning's message, if you like, the story of Jacob wrestling with God, um, picks up the theme of mankind's, or it embodies mankind's struggles with God. We looked at the life of Jacob two weeks ago. Graham introduced Jacob and who he was. And next week we're going to be concluding on Mother's Day looking at Jacob's wives, Leah and Rachel. And there's a lot that we could say about this man's life. But for the purpose of this morning, what we need to know is that almost it's as though in the womb, Jacob heard a a fighter's bell, like a ding, ding. I've lost my voice. Ding, ding. There we go. It's as though in the womb he heard a fighter's bell. And in the womb, him and his twin brother Esau, they wrestled with one another. They wrestled over who was going to be born first, who was going to have the promises of God over their lives. And that theme of wrestling and scrapping and fighting sums up Jacob's life. Nothing came easy for him. He had to fight with his brother for the blessing that God had prophetically spoken to him about before he was born. He had to fight with his dad to get the blessing that God had spoken to him about before he was born. He then had to fight with his uncle over the promises that had been made for his wives and his um, salary and various things. And he's a man whose, whose life is summed up by scrapping. Nothing came easy for Jacob. And we're going to be reading, as I said, from chapter 32. The story is that Jacob's been away for 20 years. He fled his home and moved in with his uncle. And he fled his home because of the, the, the conflict with his brother. His brother was breathing out murderous threats towards him. And uh, he knew he couldn't take his brother in a fight, so he ran. And for 20 years, he's avoided his brother. And God has recently spoken to Jacob about leaving his uncle's home and going back to the place of his birth being reconciled, if you like, with his family. So that's in his mind. That's what's going on. And this is what happens in Genesis chapter 32. 
Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the, the name of that place Machanem, which is a word that means two camps, man's and God's. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I've been with Laban and I've stayed until now. I've got oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I've sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau and he's coming to meet you and there are 400 men with him. And Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. The estrangement that exists between Esau and Jacob is about to come to an end. Jacob has fought, Jacob has run, but he's fighting and running no more. Uh, It all ends today. After 20 years of wandering, 20 years of playing that moment through his head, thinking, I wonder how it would be when I see my brother again. I wonder how he'll respond. 20 years have passed. Maybe it's water under the bridge. Maybe it's going to be okay. Well, now he knows. His brother's coming with 400 armed men. (laughs) Um, Perhaps this is not how Jacob imagined it would go or hoped it would go. And so Jacob does what he's gotten used to doing in this situation. He tries to hatch a plan. I divide my people into two. If he attacks one, the other one will escape. He starts working things out. He's used to solving his own problems. That's what he does. The threat of conflict is on the horizon. Jacob thinks, let's find a plan. Except in this situation, in this instance, it says that Jacob was greatly afraid. And his fear almost brings him to his senses. Because in response to his fear, he prays. Jacob goes on now to wrestle with God in prayer. This is what he says. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. In other words, this was your idea. (laughs) I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan. In other words, with nothing but the stick in my hand, I crossed this river. And now I've become two camps. Please deliver me or rescue me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. For he may come and attack me, the mothers and the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night. He stayed. He didn't run. Uh, He's prayed this prayer saying, God, you've promised me all kinds of things. You've promised me to return home and you'd do me good. Now Esau's coming. I'm afraid. Help. Get me out of this mess. Get me out of this mess. And after praying, what does he do? He stays. He doesn't run. His time of running is over. Actually, sometimes in our lives, confrontation can be an act of kindness on God's part. Because left to ourselves, often we want to avoid awkward conversations, avoid conflict, particularly when there's been an estrangement of relationship like this for many years. We want to avoid it. But Jacob stays. Often in my experience, when people do have moments of conflict on the horizon, they know they want to run away from it. We'll do anything to avoid it. Or we'll change churches. If someone calls you up short and just says, are you sure you want to be doing this? Is this wise? 
Often, rather than sticking with someone when we know there's difficulty, often we'd like to run rather than stay. But Jacob, to his credit, stays. This is what happens next. And from what he had, he took with him a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes, sheep and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and male donkeys. It's a lot of animals. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself. And he said to his servant, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. So he's basically sending these animals ahead of him, almost as a gift of appeasement to his brother Esau. He sends them drove by drove, animal by animal, because they increased in value as he went down with the, the cheapest at the front, the least valuable, the goats, the sheep. Getting more valuable with the camels and the, the cows towards the back end. But he's making a, trying to bargain with his brother, trying to appease him. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They're a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, Jacob's behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob's behind us. For he thought, I may appease. And then literally it says, I may appease his face with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterwards I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept my face. So the present passed on ahead of him. And he himself stayed that night in the camp. Uh, shame causes us to want to hide our faces. That's why there's all the references here to the faces of Esau, the face of Jacob. Esau had lost face at the hand of Jacob. He'd been humiliated by him. Jacob had shamed him by tricking him out of the birthright that Esau felt was his, or that was, if you like, in the customs of the day, was his. And as a result of that, Jacob had hidden his face for 20 years. And now he hears Esau's on the horizon and he thinks one thing, Esau's coming for his honor. He's coming to kill me and avenge and restore his honor. And we know what it's like when there's a bit of conflict between two people and we can't look them in the eyes. The same thing, we hide our faces, we stare at the ground. We're aware of an invisible barrier of ice or conflict between us and someone else. And you can't look at someone in the face, in the eye, until relationship has been restored or not easily. And that's what Jacob's fearing. And that same night, he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok, which is on the planet of Jakku in a galaxy far, far away. And he took them and sent them across the stream and everything that he had. That same night, we've been told a couple of times now that it's nighttime. And the impression that you get here, it says that same night he arose and he, again, he got to work. The impression you get is of a man who's restless, a man who can't sleep, a man who's dreading what's coming in the morning, sick to the stomach for worry. He crosses the ford of the Jabbok, which is a word, uh, is a play on the verb to twist in their language. It was a tributary, a stream leading into the River Jordan. He crosses this river. It's a play on the word to twist and also a play on Jacob's name. And this crossing of the river is a definitive, defining moment in Jacob's life. It's like the moment when Julius Caesar took an army across the river Rubicon in history and entered Italy with an army in tow. 
It was a moment in history where a civil war was announced on the Senate. And as Caesar crossed the river, he said the words, the die is cast. There's no going back now. For Jacob, that's what's almost the, the picture is that here. He's crossed the river. There's no going back. The stage is set. And it says then in verse 24, and Jacob was left alone. Jacob, the grabber and the grafter, the fighter, he was alone now in the desert at night with nothing but the stars for company. There's no phone signal, no Wi-Fi, no one to ask for the Wi-Fi code. There's no books with him. He is all alone. His tools are down. And this becomes for Jacob a pivotal moment in his life. You see, Jacob had thrown himself on God in prayer. He had not run with the, uh, the prospect of conflict. He had not run. He would thrown himself on God. And now, quite literally, God is about to throw himself on Jacob. You see, it's as though in this moment God thinks to himself, finally I've got Jacob alone. Now's my time. God waits for the moment that Jacob's alone. And this is what we do. When we want to have an honest or an important conversation with someone, we get them alone. We take them to one side. It's what God does in the dark. And actually in the book of Genesis and the Bible as a whole, darkness as a theme, as a picture is important. In the book of Genesis already it's been significant. Abraham's covenant, his initial promise with God, that got the whole thing started, really prepared it by day, but it was at night time under the cover of darkness that God appeared to him. Lots wrestling with the angels in the city of Sodom. Lots wrestling with the crowds happened at nighttime. Isaac, when he blesses Esau, he does so under the cover of darkness. He's blind. He can't see his son that he's blessing. In the story of the Exodus, when the people of Israel leave Egypt in flight, it occurs at nighttime. Nighttime is the moment where God does things that are significant and important in someone's life. It's dark, both metaphorically and literally for Jacob. He feels bleak. He's all alone. It's an intimidating and scary place to be. And yet one writer has said that silence or aloneness, isolation, it's a private audience chamber with God when there's no distractions and there's nothing to, I don't know, occupy our time. So when was the last time that you had some proper alone time with God? When was the last time that you turned off your phone? That you got rid of your distractions? There was no diary appointment to keep and you just got alone with God. In our day and age, being alone is rare. You might live alone, but you're really alone. With phones and Facebook and the internet and TV, it's rare that we sit in silence for long. And yet God uses it to do deep work in a person. I can remember still, 15 years ago, uh, I used to work in a bar and cycling home every night, I would cycle past the church and in the churchyard there was this wooden cross. Every night after finishing work, we'd close up and I'd go home in the early hours of the morning and on one particular night, I was a Christian already, so the cross had significance to me, but on one particular night I parked my bike and I walked over to this cross and I knelt down before it and I said, God, you can have my life. Whatever you want to do with my life is fine by me. It was 15 years ago, and I still remember it vividly. It was a significant moment in the dark, and I was alone with God. 
You see, when you're alone at night, you learn that you can't fix things by yourself. Problems can't be resolved during the night. We've all had those night times where it feels like it drags and drags and drags, and your mind's whirring, and you're thinking about all the plans you've got to make. And it's frustrating because you can't do anything about it in the night. You can't arrange that meeting. Everyone's asleep. You can't put that order in. The best you can do is maybe keep a list and hope that in the morning you'll remember what you need to do. But in the nighttime when you realize you can't fix things, it's exactly in that moment when life's dark, when you've come to the end of yourself, it's exactly in that moment that you realize you need God. You get some carpet time with him. You get out of bed, go downstairs and, I don't know, make yourself a cup of tea and sit. God, help me. God. When was the last time we wrestled with God in the night? Then after that verse, it says this, A man wrestled with him, it's Jacob, until the breaking of the day. It's night time and they wrestle. When the man saw that he could not prevail, couldn't beat Jacob, which is a strange idea, he touched Jacob's hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what's your name? He said, Jacob. He said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven, you fought with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. He said, why is it you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, saying, for I've seen God's face to face, that theme of face again, and yet my life has been spared. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is the final fight of Jacob's life. He's been fighting, but it ends tonight with this, the last one. And it's a strange story, because he's winning. Jacob's winning. He's overpowering this man, and then the man just touches his hip, <laughs> which makes you think he wasn't really winning, was he? It's like when as dads or as parents, you wrestle with your kids, and they think, I'm winning. <laughs> you think, I'm winning. And then as a dad, you're like, no, you're not winning. Poof, let me show you who's really strong. That's what's going on here. Jacob thinks, I'm winning. And then the man touches Jacob's hip. Sad about that. Sad times. Jacob, picture the scene. It's dark, he's alone. He's scared enough as it is. His older fighter, hunter-gatherer brother, is on the horizon with an army. And then in the night, a man jumps him. He doesn't know who it is to begin with. For all he knows, it could be Esau. For all he knows, this could be the, recon the moment of reconciliation he's been waiting for. All he's got is he can feel the rough texture of the man's skin and of his clothes. He can feel his hot breath breathing down his neck. The sweat on their bodies as they fight and grapple with one another. The exhaustion, the panting, the heart-wrenching tiredness. As he thinks, I'm about to burst for tiredness. It's terrifying. It's a scary moment to be. And then we learn it wasn't Esau, but God that he's fighting with. Before Jacob discovers and reconciles himself to God as friend, he fights God as enemy. God is a scary God. As we've gone through the book of Genesis, our liberal, cuddly grandpa image of God is challenged week in, week out as we meet a God who's holy, who's powerful, who fights with his people, 
who tests his people. God is someone before whom our knees should quake in terror at times. You know, we live in an age where, for many of us, we get nervous at the thought of meeting someone important, a celebrity perhaps. We live in the age of celebrity. We, we would go breathless before Justin Bieber. But when was the last time any of us, if ever, have gone breathless before God or felt a sense of dread in the presence of God? Jacob's wrestling with him. And it's in this wrestling that God changes him. It's as you lay hold of God and don't let him go. It's as you say to him, I won't let you go unless you bless me. It's in those moments that God does a deep work on you. Often in our, our quick fix society, we think I'll have a quarter pounder with cheese. And if it's not here in 10, 5, 30 seconds, I'm, I'm bored. I'll give up. I'll go somewhere else. I won't come back here again. You know, I heard a guy who runs a chain of hotels say that when he first started in the hotel industry, he would train the receptionists to speak to the people in the queue within the first two minutes, three, four minutes maybe, of them gathering. Because if you left it beyond four minutes, the people would get frustrated and get bored. That was, a, that was when he began. Now, it's ten seconds. That's the age that we live in. If you don't get spoken to within ten seconds, who are these people ignoring me? It's outrageous. God hasn't answered my prayer, and I've prayed it twice now. God is, I don't know what God's doing. And we'd sooner let go of God and turn to the fridge to fix it, or turn to our own ability to fix it, than we would hold on to him and fight. I was talking to someone yesterday, who's got a, someone in their life group who's recently become a Christian from a completely unchurched background. I walked into church, no knowledge of any, he's grown up in this country, no knowledge of any of the Bible. So these, these weeks, as we're going through stories that for some of us are familiar, oh, Jacob, yeah, Abraham, yeah. He's like, sorry, I don't know who these people are. He's a guy who's got a complete unchurched background. Upon becoming a Christian, none of his problems went away. In fact, his problems doubled. Um, him and his wife suddenly found that they had difficulty conceiving. He lost his job. His home life became difficult. His granddad died or came close to dying. Um, upon becoming a Christian, and what did he do? Well, for a number of people in that situation, they, wipe, they rub their hands, uh, or they wipe their hands of the Christian thing. They shake the dust off their feet and think, there's clearly no God. But for this man, to his credit, he fought in prayer before God. And he's held on to him. He's grappling with him. Things are starting to change in his life. And the change that's changing outwardly is good, but what's important is that inwardly he's changing. As he starts to realize, all of this is temporal. All of this is transient. It comes and goes. But God alone can be hoped in forever. And that's what this man's learning. As he fights with God. So how are we when it comes to fighting with God and holding on to him for the long haul? Well, let's talk about identity for a moment because Jacob's, Jacob has his name changed, which is a change and a shift in Jacob's identity. Now there's two common approaches to how we get an identity in this world or how we feel secure. The first is the, uh, the approach of traditional societies that says, I am whatever people tell me I am. Or I am what the society or the group determines I am. So in a traditional society, the way you got security of identity was by being good at the role that society has given to you. I'm a good doctor. I'm a good teacher. I'm a good builder. Therefore, I'm secure and I'm valuable as an individual. I am who people say I am. 
Jacob had an identity handed to him from birth. Because of the tension in the womb with Esau, because he was born grabbing onto the heel of his twin brother at birth, they said to him, oh, that's funny, you're grabbing your brother. We're going to name you Jacob, which means grabber or supplanter, the one who reaches and fights for things. So his whole life, whenever someone called him, they would call the grabber. Come here, scrapper. Come here, the one who supplants and doesn't just accept his lot but fights. That was the identity that was handed to him. Now, in tra- that was in traditional societies. In our modern society, the way we get security of identity operates differently. It's not so much, I am what people tell me I am. In fact, um, we go the opposite. So there was an album released by the, the Arctic Monkeys, a band a few years ago, that said, whatever people say I am, that's what I'm not. And that's the, the spirit of our age. I'm not what people tell me I am. Instead, in this society, it's I am what my desires tell me I am. If I have a strong desire, then that must be my identity and I must act on that identity. Whether it's, uh, so that, that whole approach affects our, our relationship life. Our sexual ethics are dictated to by our identity politics. I am what my desires tell me I am. That spirit, if you like, is best summed up in the recent classic Disney film, Frozen. Um, Queen Elsa, she flees to the mountains because for her whole life she's been told to suppress the powers that she's got, but she's tired of suppressing the powers and so she runs, heads for the hills, and she, she says this. She says, It's time to see what I can do, to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. I'm free. Let it go. (laughs) Let it go. And, um, And yeah, let it go. You can sing if you like. And there's that song, that nauseating, annoying song that you'll never get out of your head. But it sums up the spirit of our age. Just let it go. I'll be whoever I want. And in Elsa's case, letting it go created a monster that nearly killed her sister Anna, but that's by the by. But we're told, just let it go. Don't be, what tell, what, don't be the person that people tell you you should be. Be the person your desires tell you you should be. Let it go. Of, of course, in the end, that's a flawed strategy because our desires and our identity are formed by the society and community that we live in. So 100 years ago, desires that I had... My society would have told me, don't act on those desires, they're not you. These days, desires that I have, my society tells me, no, that is you. You should act on that one, just not that one. But that's, that's perhaps a bigger point. But those are the two traditional ways that people get an identity and get security in their identity. But in God's society, things are different. It's not so much, I am who people tell me I am. It's not, I am what my desires tell me I am. Instead, as Christians, we say, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and whatever I am, I'm yours. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the poem he wrote. So Bonhoeffer was a German Christian living during Nazi Germany. He was imprisoned for a failed attempt to assassinate Hitler. He was imprisoned for two years as a young man engaged to be married, and he'd never get married, never leave prison because he was killed there. And in the months before his death, he wrote a poem called, Who Am I? And in the poem, he said, Who am I? Some people tell me that I'm someone who always brings hope and encouragement. Who am I? Because I look at myself and I see that I'm desperately sick for longing. 
unable to pray, faint in my faith. Who am I? And he concludes it by saying this. They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. Whoever I am, I'm yours. I'm not what people say of me. I'm not what I desire myself to be. I'm yours. I bring myself under your identity. Jacob was given that name. You're a wrestler. You're a fighter. God changed it. He said, no, your name is now Israel. Which another one translation says, you've been strong with God. You shall be strong with man. The point is that God speaks identity over you. That's who you are. What he says you are. You didn't grow up feeling loved. He loves you. That's who you are. You're a loved one. You, didn't grow, you grew up being told that you'll never amount to much. There's no purpose for your life. You haven't got any gifts. You went to school and got told you weren't part of the gifted and talented crew. Actually, in Christ, he says, you're his workmanship, handmade. That He's given you gifts. He's put things in you for the good of the people around you. That's who you are. And a lot of it is really about learning to listen to the right society. Not traditional society, not modern society, but God. Now, whenever I get in the car, I can tell who's been in the car before me by what the radio station's tuned to. I can tell what they've been listening to. So if my kids have been in there monkeying around with the switches, I know, I know they have because it's on Fun Kids UK. So I quickly change it. Uh, or when, I, when I get in the car sometimes, and Amy's been in it before, it'll be on Heart FM, because that's her tipple of choice. I, the point is, I know who's been in it. I know what they've been listening to. And when you meet someone, you can tell what they have been listening to often by the way they carry themselves, by the way they volunteer or don't volunteer for things, by the way they hope and dream and pray. You can tell whose voices they've been listening to. You've been listening to the voices of our desire-obsessed age. You've been listening to the voices of just your parents and what they tell you. You've been listening to the voices of the latest paperback, the latest news debate. It affects who you think of yourself, what you think of faith. As Christians, we're to be those who learn to listen to God, what he says about you. We turn our dials to him. That's what Jacob had to learn. After this wrestling moment with God, Jacob's life was never the same again. Um, In the next chapter, the message translation puts it beautifully. It describes the moment that Jacob then woke up and went to meet his, his big brother. And the reconciliation that occurred there. This is what it says in Genesis 33. It says, Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming with his 400 men. Divided the children between Leah and Rachel and the two maidservants. And he put the maidservants out in front. Leah and her children next. And Rachel and Joseph last. He led the way as he approached his brother. Bowed seven times, honoring his brother. But Esau ran up and embraced him. Held him tight and kissed him. And they both wept. Then Esau looked around and saw the women and children. And who are these with you? Jacob said, the children that God saw fit to bless me with. It's a beautiful moment. 20 years of estrangement, reconciliation. And Jacob was able to be reconciled, not because he'd hatched a good plan, but because he'd fought with God and overcome. He'd held on to God enough and said, I don't want to let you go until you bless me. I need you. 
he realized in that moment, although he'd been fighting his whole life with people, he'd really only been fighting with God through these people. And in making his peace with God, he was able to make his peace with other people. The struggle was over. Jacob had never found it easy to trust God. Life had never been handed to him on a plate. He had learned to fight. And in the subsequent scene that follows with Jacob and Esau, he says to him, he says, seeing your face is like seeing the face of God and you've accepted me, he said. Seeing your face, the shame's been removed. The fear that he had of seeing his brother has been removed. You know, we operate under different worldviews. Some that are fear-based worldviews where we think, can I trust God or do I need to fear the spirits, the enemy, the world? Others that are shame-based worldviews, like this one saying, is it shame or honor that I'm dealing with? I'm ashamed because of what I've done. But God is the God who destroys fear. He conquers it. He's the God who removes our shame and repositions us to a place of dignity and honor and says, you can trust me. Because God had accepted Jacob, his brother accepted him also. And he said, seeing your face, having that shame removed, is like seeing the face of God because he's accepted me. Now, all of this is, speaks truth to us about who God is and what God's like and how we're to deal with him. But the most significant aspect of this is that we have a brother who's wrestled with God on our behalf and has overcome. And now as a result, offers us identity, reconciliation, an opportunity to wrestle and engage with God. Because of Jesus, this story Wonderful though it is, because of Jesus, this story means so much more to us. Because you see, Jesus, like Jacob, wrestled with God in prayer in the nighttime. Jesus, like Jacob, we're told in the book of Hebrews, he attains true maturity because of his wrestling with God. As Jesus wrestled with God, it was dark in the garden. When he was crucified, the sky turned dark. And like Jacob, Jesus also received a wound in his side. But not just in his side, in his hands and in his feet as well. And like Jacob, Jesus received a new name as a result of his wrestling with God. The book of Philippians says that Jesus has now been given the name that is above every name. Because Jesus wrestled with his Father's will and went through with it, now Jesus has been given the name above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess that he is the King. And every knee will bow before him and proclaim him as ruler and as Lord. And now Jesus, that one with the name above every name, looks at you and me and says, have a new identity. No longer enemy, no longer stranger, but friend and son, child, daughter of God. We've been given a new identity by him. We've been given reconciliation with the Father because of what Jesus has done for us. And so the story of Jacob points to the ultimate story of reconciliation that's on offer to you and me. Whether you've grown up hearing about God your whole life, you need to be reconciled to God and it's on offer to you because of Jesus. Whether you've grown up never hearing about God, coming to church for just the first time and thinking, I don't understand all of these stories, I don't have it in here. But he offers you reconciliation, friendship with God again, a new identity. He positions you with honor and dignity, bestows on you royalty. And as we conclude, we're going we're to gather at the cross as Sarah and the band lead us. 
And we're going to respond to this offer of reconciliation with God. Thank God for the identity that he offers us. Let me pray. Perhaps the band can come and join us. Thank you, Father, that you love us enough to fight with us. You love us enough to wrestle with us. You love us enough to sometimes knock a hip out of joint in order to bless us, to teach us things. But thank you that you've shown your love for us in that you, you did this not just to Jacob, but to your son so that we could know you. I pray, Father, for my friends here this morning and ask that they would know you with them in their lives more and more. They would know this feeling of laying hold of you and of not letting you go. Father, for those who don't yet know you and have never crossed that line of faith, like crossing the river Rubicon, they've never crossed that line. I pray that today, God, they would reach out and say, please come and bless me. I need you. Father, we recognize that all our own efforts and attempts only ever amount in darkness and solitude and estrangement from our brothers and the threat of conflict. And yet your love for us offers us more than we could ever have hoped for or worked for on our own. Amen.